Hello, and welcome to the Brain Mastery Podcast, brought to you by ABI Wellness. This series features renowned experts on brain injury, brain health, and rehabilitation. Be sure to visit abiwellness.com for more resources. All right, welcome back to the Brain Mastery Podcast. Today's episode, we're going to be covering a lot around leadership, but not your standard book definition of leadership. What does that mean? But really leadership and practice and leadership in behavior and how to go down your own journey towards leadership, not just as an individual, but even as an active individual within community and within organizations. Today's guest is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He's an instructor that has served in roles at the University of Toronto, instructing leadership courses. Today's guest, you're going to want to listen up. He's very wise. He's also hilarious. (laughs) Today's guest is Drew Dudley. Drew comes to us with a very eclectic background, having studied many things from women's studies to anthropology in university, has specialized in helping the social profit sector to help to serve underserved communities and causes. And it's really led him into his work as a leadership instructor, facilitator, thought leader, best-selling author, and just all-around cool guy. So today, we're very, very happy to be joined by Drew Dudley from Day One Leadership. Drew, thanks for being with us. And I'm thrilled to be here. And thank you for not calling me an expert because that's all this pressure goes on right at the beginning. Because every time someone says he's a leadership expert, I don't think there's such a thing. So I, I agree. appreciate you taking that pressure off right at the beginning. So. <laughs> So now I can be like, here are the things I do not know, which I tend to learn a lot. (laughs) You and I are dialed right in on this. So Drew, as you know, and we were talking earlier for a while and then doing some of my research, I was mentioning to Drew that I actually had the privilege to hear him speak here in Vancouver a few years ago. And I really enjoyed his perspective on leadership because sometimes we can find leadership as a A pretty challenging and overwhelming term because, of course, when one is a leader, there must also be a follower. And so people struggle with that concept. And with our kind of my lens uh, professionally here, I kind of work in kind of the rehabilitation space. And I think this lens, your work, Drew, holds um, a really special and important place in the world of healthcare, especially given these last few years. In kind of our work, we, we kind of specialize in providing solutions to organizations that have an, a currently unmet need. And that tends to be around this cognitive rehabilitation side. When you think about the world of leadership and maybe the world of health, what would some of your main message be given all the great experience that you have in the process of training people towards more informed leadership? Yeah, I think the most interesting connection is I was thinking about this as I looked a little bit into what you do and as we chatted a little bit about the idea of being in rehabilitation. And I guess it really depends on how you define rehabilitation. But I guess I could look at what I do as trying to rehabilitate our understanding of something. So is rehabilitation that something became unhealthy and you're trying to return it to a state or maybe return is the wrong word. You are trying to find a state where what has been damaged can return to its absolute best function. Now, that may not be the same as it was before, as a friend of mine with a traumatic brain injury told me. She didn't start getting better until she gave up trying to go back to normal. 
And she started embracing the idea that what she wanted to discover was a new form of normal that wouldn't be compared against what she used to be. It would be compared about what she is and what she wants to be and what she can be. I try to rehabilitate our understanding of leadership because I think we've made it a little toxic's the wrong word, but I yeah. worry that we've made leadership into something that is damaged and therefore not as effective. And if we have a damaged understanding of something, I think that we have trouble executing it properly. And so I believe our understanding of leadership has been damaged because of things beyond our control. Early on, and I mean, I'll tell you how brains work. You know better than I do. But I do know that the first example we give people to try to explain an idea not only shapes how they think about it for the rest of their life, it limits how they think about it for the rest of their life. Mm. And we teach people a very limited understanding of leadership because of the first examples that we use. Wow. We can say leadership is about serving others. We can say leadership is about inspiring others. We could say like you did that it's about followership, but that is not what we teach with our examples, right? First examples no. any of you were ever given of leaders, they were all giants, yeah. presidents. Yeah. And if anything, the last few years have taught us being president doesn't mean you're a leader. Like no. presidents, scientific groundbreakers, people who conquer empires. When those are the examples that we're given, as kids, when our brains are still forming and understanding ideas, because when you're young, you are discouraged from challenging adults. And adults are the ones who create your conception of the world. We teach young people now that leaders are about money, power, influence, and fame. And the result is that we create a concept of leadership that makes most people feel like it's not a part of their life. Because most of us don't see ourselves as having power and influence, money especially when compared to the examples we were given. The examples that we give young people shape how generations see leadership, and it makes most people on the planet uncomfortable with calling themselves leaders. It makes us believe that the only things on earth we're celebrating are the things hardly anyone can do. I want to rehabilitate our understanding of leadership to reinforce the idea that leadership is, in fact, something that we all can and should do. But our understanding has been made so narrow that we fail to acknowledge our opportunity to do so. It's been turned into something most of us don't see as something we are capable of living every day. We got to work towards it. One day we'll have enough money, power, and fame to earn the title. I want to rehabilitate that idea because what it's done is it's created a world where most of the people on earth who are leaders do not feel comfortable calling themselves such. And so most of the leadership on the planet is coming from people who don't think they're leaders. And right. we need to rehabilitate that understanding. And you can do that. You can change cultural expectations slowly with a lot of work. I mean, we're seeing a regression now, but we rehabilitated our understanding of what equity meant, of what women were capable of and that we were systematically keeping them from doing, what minorities and people in the LGBT community are doing. We are slowly trying to rehabilitate our cultural understandings of what is acceptable and what's possible. And I think we can do that with leadership as well. We can wholesale change the way people expect each other to embrace things. And I think right now we're seeing it with social justice and we're seeing the pushback that comes from it. People are like, oh my God, no, we can't have people accept this. We disagree with it. But I think we can change leadership the same way, the same way we've changed the way people understand social justice, gender equality. Uh, yeah. cultural equality. Yeah. The world is changing. We're seeing pushback as a result. A lot of the negative things that in my mind we're seeing are a pushback. 
but we can rehabilitate our understanding of toxic messages we're given. But it takes a lot of work because, as you know, it is hard to unwire the brain once it has been wired yeah. for a long time. There's so much there. And most you know, of something... my answers will be shorter. No, no, no. <laughs> this is true. This is awesome, man. You know, I'm really excited to kind of pick your brain a little bit more on that because I think one of the things that I hear frequently that can be challenging for people working in this field, but also people that have had an experience like your friend had mentioned with the TBI becoming a new version of myself, right? A different me, not better or worse, but slightly different. And one of the things that I want to kind of pick your brain on is when, as I was mentioning earlier, Drew, when I first got into this work, a lot of the mindset around post-acute recovery of cognitive function and brain injury was very much fixed. That's what Carol Dweck would say. It was a fixed mindset, right? But in a lot of physical rehab, it was always growthy, right? And philosophically, I, I struggled with that. And the reason why was because I had so many orthopedic injuries in my time. But it also seemed to see many people, regardless of condition, reclaim somewhat of their function through focused effort, engagement, and good measurement of result and transferability into whatever they may be doing in their activities of daily living. That model works, guys. <laughs> like, why aren't we doing more of that on the cognitive side? That was a high degree of frustration for me because when I first got into this work group, the research suggested at very good places, like the top tier research places like University of Toronto, like University of British Columbia, like Harvard University, these top tier research institutions were suggesting that the window for recovery of cognitive functioning following a traumatic brain injury was about 24 months. What happens in month 25? Well, what level of rehab is done in month three? Right? These are all big questions I had at scale. Like, because of what I had seen through one of my greatest mentors in this work is out, out of Toronto. She is a neuroplastician. She had created a new way of rehabilitating or improving cognitive function for people with learning disabilities. So what if we could then study and do some work to better understand what the outcome could be if we put in a more well-scaled plan earlier? What could that mean for the community of people at, say, you know, month 24, month 25, following this sort of an injury? And these were the things, Drew, like I want you to push on me on this. That's what I'm trying to better distill. There's the medical side. Okay, how about the leadership side, right? How about the communication side? You know, what's your advice for our listeners around that? Well, I mean, one thing to think about as well is on the inherent bias that we all have. And I mean, I worked at the university and intellectual ability when you work at a university is absolute gold, right? I mean, it's all, like everybody there is there because the ability to think is so important to them and they take joy in it and they've been mm. given a gift to do it. And when you ask why was it growth on the physical side, very fixed on the mental side, I think we have to, to take into account who was trying to create the plans to return. Mm. If the most valuable thing in your life is your cognitive ability, which is what a lot of researchers would honestly be able to say, it's their greatest gift. And you look at someone and you have to figure out how to help them be better. Inherently in your mind, you're going to say, this is what success at a cognitive level looks like because it's so important to me. This is my world. And so I can see why for a long time, researchers were like, how can we get people back to where we are? Because the thought of living 
without that ability for me is less than a life. But I think that what's happening is empathy becomes more and more important, which is in leadership as well. You've got more researchers like yourself and others saying, it's not about getting back to where we were. It's about getting to the best place for you. And it's the same way that I hid why I was bipolar for so long in an an institution that was all about intellectual Mm -hmm. ability, because any sort of what people see as a cognitive barrier within a university system is seen as the worst possible thing, right? So I hit it because my entire career is based on people finding my ideas credible. I think it takes leadership to be able to take a look and say, what do the people I serve need more than saying, what do I need to feel like a leader? You know what I mean? For lack of a better term. So no, it's good. and And I apologize if that wasn't your question, but, and I was thinking about it and I never thought about it before. But I knew the people I worked with at the university and for them, the, their cognitive ability was so important to them, not because they were cocky or arrogant, but because it's how they entered the world and it's how they felt they made the most difference in the world. And so if that's how you feel about your ability to think and your ability to cognitively function, I think there's an inherent part of you that says anything less than the best is undesirable. And I think that what happened is researchers are starting to say, no, what we need to do is not think about how we would like to think, but we would like to think about what would be best in terms of the new reality for the people we're helping. And so that means you try different things because your goal isn't just to get people back to what they were. Your goal is to get people to where they can most thrive now. And I think that my leadership's the same way. I love what you said there, but I want to really hit on a point. I really want to hit on one because you covered a lot there, but I want to distill one, focus on it for a second. One of the things that I think many people struggle with, and there was one person who said to me, and I, I really, I really sit with that thought is, you know, options are really valuable. And I sit with that. And I'm like, when you really think about that, it's like kind of mind blowing because a lot of people out there in community right now, but not just people, a lot of professionals out there right now, because I hear from them all the time they don't necessarily have the options to help people get access to the kind of cognitive therapy that would lead to a transferability into the improvement of the quality of life for that person. Therefore, it's scary, I think, for them to look at a new option because like we talk about neuroplasticity, neurons that fire together, wire together. And in James Clear's work, right, in the Atomic Habits work, changing behavior and building habits is very hard. So when you think about your work, and this is what you do, Mm -hmm. what are your thoughts about that? Because it's probably pretty scary, I would think. Well, I know it because I actually thought, you know, I was in a fixed brain mindset for sure. I thought, well, for sure, the body, like when I do my ACL, we can do that, right? If I want to get my bench press up to 500 pounds, I can do that. I just, I got to put the plan in place. Oh yeah, me Um, too, for sure. (laughs) <laughs> so so give it some friend, thought. I could, I could put the best plan in place to bench press 500 pounds and it ain't going to happen but i like your faith in your abilities but sorry <laughs> I you off just because i all i was like i'm falling right along and then also like i want to bench press 500 pounds i'm just like well i did, dude, I did I'm gonna need, like i'm gonna need some rewiring of my brain to believe that so well, no but that was on my me. brand what i was doing yeah. was playing football and that was something that could transfer i thought into helping me become a better player but it, awesome. it, it, it's that whole practice play metaphor. But when we think about that in this brain health space, what I was trying to get to is it would be pretty natural for it to be a little bit scary for someone to think about doing something new and innovative because there's a risk, right? And the risk yeah. is what if 
it doesn't end up being exactly what I think it could be in my mind right now. Yeah. You know, I just was listening to, I think I was just listening to Bob Costas tell a story about he had Mickey Mantle over to his house and he invited mm. Stan Musil as well and his wife and wow. they had a long, an, a wonderful night. And then after Musil left, he talked about how Mantle sat with him and said, you know, what's amazing about Stan Musil is he got absolutely everything out of his talent. Such a talented guy, but he worked so hard. Mm. And he said, you know, man, he will never have to live with what I do every day, which is that I never took full advantage of the gifts that I was given. He's like, I was faster and better than every baseball player that I ever played against. But most of them were better than me as players because they never wasted. And I have to spend the rest of my life looking at that. When you're talking about the courage it takes, the reason we don't start some things, I think there's two reasons. One, we're afraid that what will end up is worse than what we have. And that's the reason we don't do anything right? Is that we take a look and we say, what could happen as a result of this behavior could end up with the with less or in a worse place than I currently am. The challenge is, is that when we don't like the places we currently are anyway, what are you actually risking in that situation? And that's the part that I think really courage is, is it's taking action when there's the possibility of loss. And I think it's so much more important as people and leaders to worry less about becoming the type of person who doesn't make mistakes and instead focus on becoming the type of person who is incredibly good at dealing with our mistakes. And I worry the education system teaches us that you have to avoid being wrong, as opposed to you better be prepared to be wrong and be really good at being wrong. Like if I could go back to school, I'd be like, become really good at, at being wrong while you're here. Because what school teaches you is that you will be punished every time you say, I don't know. And so for me, a lot of the work I do with leadership comes from this, what you just said the habit side of things. It really started a lot of what I do when a student came in and said something that it turned out to be stolen. But at the time, I thought it was unbelievably insightful. He said, you know, man, it's a lot easier to stand up for an ideal than it is to live up to one. And I just thought, damn, how do you figure that out at 20? A lot yeah. easier to stand up for something <laughs> than live up to it. It's a uh, former Supreme Court Justice Ali Stevenson who had said it. But I always used to joke, you know, you get this too as a man in the academic and research realm that you never steal an idea. You just benchmark a best practice. Yeah. And what we got doing is how do we actually have the guts to close the gap between the person we want to be and how we're behaving? Because my work focuses on the idea that that gap exists in every human being between who we want to be and how we're behaving. Most people do not deny that's true. Every single person I know with any level of self-awareness recognizes there's a gap between who they want to be and how they're behaving. We rationalize it as being temporary. That's what we're amazing at is the rationalization piece. Oh, well, that gap is there, but just until, just until the pandemic's over, just till the promotion, yeah. just till the kids leave, right? Yeah. But leadership for me is acknowledging the gap exists, recognizing it's your responsibility that it exists. It's nobody else's fault. Yeah. You did that. Yeah. And the most important piece is to come up with a plan every day to close it. Now, you want to put a different word in? Come up with habits to close that every single day. My work says, if you want to be mentally healthier, you have to prove to yourself every day that there is an answer to this question. I'm going to pose it to you. I don't know if I asked it before when you heard me speak. Why do you matter? Like, do you have an answer for that? Why do I matter? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to exactly. I've thought about this a lot. 
it's really my responsibility to give the gifts that I've been blessed with in order to help others become more self-aware to live more towards their potential. Yeah. And that's awesome. And, but the number of people who haven't done what you just did, which is, I've thought a lot about it. And you know what we haven't thought a lot about? No one asked us. Like, it's not a question we ask ourselves because when we're kids, we go to school and we're taught that it's not really your job or your right to say why you matter. Yeah. Yeah, true. Right. Like why you matter is evaluated externally. And then you prove that you should. Because I once asked one of my favorite students, like, why do you matter? And he said, I don't yet. That's why I'm working so hard. And I thought, how can we claim we're delivering an education to young people when some of the most dynamic, driven, compassionate people you'll ever meet can't answer why do you matter? So my argument is that mental wellness, all right? And, And for me, like mental health, the problem with the term is I think a lot of people think it just means that you don't, you're not mentally ill is mental health. Mental yeah. wellness is being at your intellectual best. Like I'm bipolar. So can you say that I'm never mentally healthy or never like yeah. don't focus on my yeah. mental wellness? Yeah. I have a mental illness, which means my mental wellness is way higher on my list of priorities than a lot of people I know without diagnosed right. mental illnesses. Right. And so for me, wellness means giving yourself evidence every day that you do matter. And what I try to do is be systematic in that and say, okay, well, let's give evidence to ourselves every day. In order to provide evidence, you have to have very clear criteria on what you're looking for, right? And so my work says, all right, you feel crappy about yourself. You feel like you have imposter syndrome, which is a terrible phrase that we never should have allowed to permeate our society because imposter syndrome, imposter syndrome says that feeling insecure, that feeling as if you don't deserve the good things that are coming to you, feeling as if you're faking it in front of other people, it says that that is a pathology. That is a syndrome. That is, And syndrome is like disease. Like it's in the world of unhealthy, right? Yeah. But everything I just listed is human. Like being insecure, feeling like you don't belong, feeling like yeah. you're faking it, that is the human condition. And when we take something that almost everyone on earth feels and we throw the word syndrome next to it, as if it's some sort of outlier, as if it's some sort of disease. It's not. We've pathologized human feelings. And so I believe that if you want to feel better about yourself, the number one step is do things each day that make you feel like you're the person you want to be. And it's such a simple, like, okay, whatever. But everyone says it and nobody says, well, here's a plan on how. It's just like, well, come up with a plan and do it. Well, no, I'd like, you want to feel that you matter. Identify the values you want to put out into the world. Identify what they mean. And then let's use some behavioral psychology to trick your brain into doing it. When I say it out loud, I realize that it seems so oversimplified. If, but Drew, if I could, if I could on that, yeah. like, I love what you just said. So I got goosebumps because what typically happens in some of these cases when we're talking about whether it's uh, pure mental health or an injury or illness that is resulting in mental health issues, right? Mm -hmm. So, or mental wellness issues, because we all have them. Why do we then go to treating the symptom and not the primary issue? And this is the thing that I really struggle with. So when we started doing some of the research that we did, typically the uh, standard of care was rooted in a lot of uh, pharmaceutical uh, methods. Not that those are always bad. That's, you know, it's not always the case. Every situation may be different. 
However, why aren't we exhausting behavioral modification opportunity first or in conjunction along with these other methods? Because I've seen more kids come off of attention medications because their actual issue was a cognitive issue and not an independent neurotransmitter issue. So they were treating something with great intention. I believe, I choose to believe that. But what they were actually observing was not an independent attention disorder. It was actually a cognitive disorder, meaning working memory issues, meaning central auditory processing disorder, meaning motor output issues. Well, what does that look like in a classroom? It looks like you're not paying attention. Well, why aren't you paying attention? Because you don't have the cognitive capacity to do so. So, yeah. so what do we do? Then we medicate, which I think is well-intentioned. And in some cases, maybe, but we need to do better assessment to better understand before treating. And I think that's something that I just wanted to hit on because I thought you nailed it. And when we think about mental health or mental wellness, I like how you say that. Like What we've seen in our work is we've seen almost all people with any history of a brain injury are going to have challenges with their mental wellness. They're going to have challenges with their anxiety and their depression. But what are we doing about it? Well, if we exhaust the behavioral opportunities, what we found in the second study that we did with UBC was we saw significant improvements, statistically significant improvements in reductions of both anxiety and depression. And that was where I was like, heck yeah, man. Like, yes. Because you know why? The other part to it that gets me so jacked up is that a lot of the people who go through this condition, they have a lot of learned helplessness along with it, right? I need that pill in order to get well. I need this to get well. And then the locus of control is, is so far outside of yourself. With this program, you had to look yourself in the mirror. You know, you had to do the David Goggins thing. Look yourself in the mirror. It's up to me. I got to do this. If I want to get better at this, I got to do it. And at the end of that, it was pretty awesome to see these changes because some people would come to us and go, well, you know, I'm like, no, I couldn't have done that. (laughs) You did it. And you're going to have to learn to deal with that. You can do better. Good for you. And that's scary because maybe you start to expect more of yourself, right? And that can be scary. Yeah, I also think that we're reward-based creatures. And so the way that our society works or any factor of society works is in large part by what the people within that particular part of society learned would gain rewards. And so I think every part of... We evolve consistently in our understanding. And I think that one of the things that you just highlighted is something that is evolving, but it's taking more time than we'd like, especially when you're on the side that have seen how much it would benefit if more people were aware of what you were. I don't know if that made yeah. any sense. Yeah, it makes but what sense. But what it basically means is that I believe that medical care was delivered for a long time by people who were very academically skilled. It was the only way you could become a physician, right? You have to be good yeah. at that type of thinking. And for a long time, the mind and the body in the medical profession were seen as independent things. And I think that's changing. But I think that a lot of people who went to med school went to med school because they could think in a very analytical way. And they did well academically because there are answers in science. The mind has significantly fewer answers. And I think that as a result, the medical profession, and I'm not crapping on the medical profession because I sure can't do the things you do. But I think if you talk to doctors, And when I was invited once to speak at the medical school convocation, it was because the students said, in our four or however many years we've been here, 
we haven't really heard anybody talk about the whole person particularly well. And I think that part of the reason you're saying, why is this happening? Is because I think we're only now, as more people start to realize it, starting to ask medical professionals to consider the whole person as part of their process. We also have to recognize, I think the medical system is overwhelmed, especially yeah. in the last couple of years. Yeah. And why do we not do it? Like, the, to answer your question, I think the answer is efficiency. And I yeah. think that the purpose of the medical system, particularly, you know, we're Canadian, which means it's free, which means people use it all the time when they need it. And that isn't always the case in the States, right? Because you can't afford it. So lots of yeah. people aren't going into the medical system to get the treatment they need because they can't afford right. it. In Canada, everybody gets into it, which of course has its own issues. Yeah. But people in the medical system have a reality that they have to triage and move fast. They were taught to focus on the body, not necessarily the holistic person. And what we're seeing is people just get moved through as quickly as possible, as you said, with the best intentions. And I think what's key is podcasts like this and research that says the better we understand how we need to treat the whole person, which means it's probably going to take longer to get it right, the better we're going to serve people. I think, and this is the challenge that you know we're always going to face, is how do you take more time in order to do it right and still get everybody what they need? And yeah. that, for me, is the challenge. And well, I, I think we have to be willing to be patient is the unfortunate annoyance. But that is really easy to say when you're not the one suffering. Yeah, you know, like, totally. Be patient. Look how far gay rights have come. Be patient. Yeah. Look how far our understanding of mental illness addiction has come. Yeah. Well, yeah, but that doesn't help the guy who served no. 17 years in prison because we had it wrong, because yeah. he had an ounce of pot on it. That's the challenge we face. And I think it's why it's important to have these conversations because my argument with leadership is not about titles and, and accomplishments. It's about your own understanding of your ability to matter. And so my argument is that leadership exists in individual moments of interpersonal impact. And I think that that's what's really important because when you treat leadership like that, everybody realizes they have the capability to do it. And sometimes the only thing keeping people from engaging in something positive for themselves or others is simply nobody has made clear to them that it's within their capabilities. They've been convinced from a very young age they can't do it. I convinced myself at the age of 19 that I couldn't run. All right, I played football too. I was a baseball player, but I yeah. couldn't run, not for a distance. I was an offensive lineman. We didn't have to. Yeah. And then 12 years later, I decided, you know what? I'm going to see if I can run for 10 minutes. Just because I hadn't. I was, what, 36 or 37, and I was on a treadmill walking because the weather was bad. And I tried yeah. to walk two hours a day for my mental health. I said, I'm going to try to run for 10 minutes. And my brain said, you can't run for 10 minutes. It had been simply assumed my whole life by me that I couldn't run. I then ran a 5K in just over 30 minutes. And I had no idea that I could do that. And then I started signing up for races, doing (laughs) something that I simply had assumed I couldn't do. Whatever is true of you, your background, your ability. And you know, I know for people with brain trauma as well, And this is also the case, you know, as someone who's bipolar, you can't help but lament what you don't have anymore. And by that, I mean, medication worked for me, along with many other sort of support. But medication in terms of mental will save my life, probably. 
But I think what's essential for me is that I lament sometimes that part of my brain that the medication manages to protect me, right? Like hypomania can be very dangerous. Yeah. And now I don't feel that part of me anymore. And it makes me have healthier relationships. It makes me be healthier physically. And it makes my life significantly better, as well as my relationships. The fact that I use mood stabilizers. But yeah. it also means that that amazing short story or that great piece of the speech that just came to me in the middle of the night or my ability mm. to vamp on stage for like, I don't know, 40 minutes and still make it good. That isn't there anymore. But neither right. is all of the negative things. And I think that for anyone, like as, as you're trying to recover, rehabilitate from an injury, it's almost impossible to not evaluate where you are versus where you were. And the whole idea of day one leadership is the same thing with leadership is don't worry about the past and don't worry about the future. Worry about today and the decisions you make because you have control over those things. Make decisions based on what generates the most options. And what generates the most momentum because plans, plans are kind of, I'm not going to say they're a joke. They're important for setting and executing on important habits and figuring out what habits you have to learn. But man, nobody, if you go to any point in my life, five years before that point, and you would ask the person five years previous, where will you be in five years? It would be so far off base. Like any moment in my life, if you'd ask Hmm. me about five years earlier, I'd be like, it wouldn't mean me real. Five-year plans have historically been so ridiculously off base. What's the point? So what I try to do is like, I'm also a recovering alcoholic. So one of the things you learn in recovery is if you don't want to have a drink for the rest of your life, you have to choose not to have a drink today. Right. That's the only choice that matters. Not the choices you made yesterday or the five years previously, and not the choices you have to make for the rest of your life. All that matters are your choices today. And the most important choice for those of us in recovery is today you must make the choice not to have a drink. If you've Mm -hmm. done it for 2,197 days so far, that doesn't matter. The fact Mm -hmm. that you know that you've got hopefully 8,000 days still to go, that's intimidating. Can't think about that. Right. All that matters is today. The same thing is true of your mental health. The same thing is true of living your values. Every day I I have to answer a self-respect question. What have I done today to be good to myself? In yeah. order to believe that I deserve another day on this planet, I have to prove to myself that I have lived three of my six core values every day. That's Love it. Love it. Love it. And for what it's worth, everybody, psychology says that the brain doesn't handle unanswered questions very well. So if you stick a question in your brain, it will actually, one, be incredibly uncomfortable until it answers it. And two, will actually adapt your behavior without your knowledge to find the answer to a question. If you've ever questioned the fact that your brain struggles with unanswered questions, think about the last time you tried to remember the name of that actor or actress and you couldn't do it. But 24 or 48 hours later, in the shower, lying in bed, in your car, the name of that actor or actress pops into your head. Your brain does not let go of questions to which it does not have an answer, it makes it incredibly uncomfortable and your brain will go to great lengths to remove that discomfort. So I turn all of my behavior goals every day into questions that are then embedded into my mind as expectations and into my phone as reminders. I love it. And every day I have six questions and I need to answer three of them. 
And that means that every day, no matter what outside of my control blows up in my face, I, at the end of the day, can point and say, even if I screwed up a million things, even if the big long-term goal doesn't seem to be coming closer, today, I lived courage, today, I lived Mm. self-respect, and today, I lived impact. Those are three of my six core values. Mm. And you know what? Today, I may not have won. I might have lost today. Things might not have worked out. Yeah, but I do have these moments where I was the person I wanted to be. I love that. Oh my god! So, yeah. so that is genius and needs to be done more. What I like, Drew, about what you did is you really outlined a process because it can seem yeah. overwhelming. Obviously, to change anything can be seem so overwhelming, and I love the mindful approach of you know just one day at a time. But if you're working one day at, at a time, knowing that there's a process there to support you in that moment, in that day. That's going to lead to success and being an old football player too, right? That was like the whole game planning thing, right? You know, Monday's practice is very different than Tuesday, very different Wednesday, game days, Friday or Saturday. And we're going to work towards that goal. Now, it's a, for, it's a culture of personal leadership. Yeah, and culture is just expectations. Okay. On a football team, I'll take culture over talent any day. Every, every, all, you know, all, day all day long. All day long. Yeah. And what I want to do though, is I know you're just so giving of your time and I just really am grateful for all that you've given today to our listeners. And I, I know it's going to land very, very well for them. So that I mean it like, thank you. Drew's in Vermont in a, in a beautiful cabin in the green mountains, <laughs> you know, he's, he's really put himself out to, to share with our audience today. And I'm really grateful for that. Many people in our space, unfortunately, haven't yet had access to leadership training. I think it's important. I'm just always inquisitive about leadership and I've always been fascinated by it. How do people reach you if they want to learn more? Like I assume you are still doing some courses, training. You've also got a book that I want you to, I know you don't, you're not a big plug guy, but I'm asking you to please, because the (laughs) message is valuable. If you could please do that, a little bit of information on kind of day one leadership and then how do we get a hold of you? How do we get the book? Man, that's awesome. Thank you. Like, I don't think I'll, I'll ever be an expert. My goal every day is to become a little less ignorant. So I'll yeah. never fully be ex- an expert, but I hope every day to be a little less ignorant about it. You know what? DrewDudley.com is the place to find all kinds of information. The book is called This is Day One, A Practical Guide to Leadership That Matters. Big focus was it has to be practical. Yeah. It started at university where I got a room full of 20 or 19-year-olds who have no power in their lives. It's yeah. run by other people. And so we were trying to come up with a way of feeling like we had power to create moments of leadership, even when like their age, their financial situation, any of our ages, financial situation, yeah. education, just doesn't stand in the way of this type of behavior. So I have a, the book lays out how do you figure out those core values and create your own questions? Because I did reference the questions and the book talks about not only what my six are, but more importantly, how to figure out your own. And it's only one type of leadership tool. I want to be very clear on that, that what I offer is one particular tool you can use to better align your behavior with your stated values. And People a big part of that... I'm buying it. I, I, you were nice enough to give me a copy of something. But, oh my goodness, do this. Like we were talking earlier about, and I, I know he's a bit of a competitor, but you know, Simon Sinek, oh. I had people start with, the, what's your, why, why, why'd you get up yeah. today? Why? You, well, yeah, you like Simon's, like, not, Simon's not a competitor, man. Like Simon's got another way of doing another it. Another way. And, 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 and it put relates. it all together. Yeah, put it all together. Like, and and that, that's what I love about this because sometimes I go to the sports metaphor and all that stuff, but <laughs> why am I doing this? 
I do these runs. Okay. Cause I'm like you, I'm like, I can never run. And I'm like, maybe yeah. I could, maybe I could. Until you do. Yeah. Until like, you do. And you're like, this I is I could great. never quit drinking until you yeah. do. Right. Until like, you do. And so the running, I get that going. And now I call it my lunch investment. I'm like, I'm putting into this bank account, man. I like that. And it's my lunch investment. And don't mess with my 30 minutes of lunch investment because it's for me. And I'm not going to apologize about it. I'm investing in me. And I know that it's so good for the brain. And I don't know, it's so good for my mood. It's, it's important. But your message is very, very important because this is a hard thing to do, to conceptualize for people. How do I go about doing this? Yeah, honestly, it was just like, the way that people treated me every day that I was surrounded by had a much bigger impact on my life than what the president of the university or a CEO or the prime minister of Canada on my daily day basis. Like they really didn't matter nearly as much as the guys and the women I worked with and the students that I worked with. You know, it's an old joke, man. Like, can you tell me the last five winners of the best actor Oscar? Can you tell me the last five winners of the Pulitzer Prize? The last five winners of the Nobel Peace Prize? Like most of us can't rhyme off those names, but the name of the friend that was there during your last darkest time, the name of the teacher who changed your understanding of how smart you were, we all know those names. And yet we evaluate our lives based on how well we got ourselves in the first category, names that people don't remember. And yet we don't give ourselves enough credit for being the other type of person who, as a general rule, mattered more to us. So the power to create individual moments of interpersonal impact is the only power on earth accessible to everyone. Love it. Almost every source of power on this planet has systemic barriers between that power and most of the people on the planet. The ability to create moments of interpersonal impact is the one form of power that one group cannot limit for another group. And that's why I think If I can find a way to help anybody feel less powerless in their ability to create moments that matter in this world, that I think is what's key. People, when they feel helpless and when they feel like they don't matter, treat other people like they don't matter. Because when we're in pain, we become incredibly self-centered because we need to survive. And if we can find a way through podcasts like this, yeah. From individuals who are like, I'm not what I used to be. It doesn't matter. All right. If you can't do certain things you used to do, what we will find is what are the doors that are now open for what you can. And my argument is that the ability to create one of those moments for people every day can make the most brutal days salvageable. I'm not saying you will go through life skipping because look, no. like I've done days where I've answered four of my six questions and I feel so bad at the end of the day. But when I close my eyes, between the time you let your last screen turn off, phone, computer, and you fall asleep, for some people, it's blissfully like 12 seconds between like the last screen going off of them. I think for the rest of us, it can be a little longer. That's such a scary time, man. That's when you question yourself, you question your values, you question your character. And so for me, every day, I just want to give myself the opportunity to have a voice during that period where everything in your brain is like, you're the worst and you're not what you used to be, or you're wasting your talent. I just want a voice that's like, yeah, maybe, but today I was impactful. I was courageous and I lived with self-respect. Prove me wrong. MRF. I think my goal, we all have the voice that stands up and says, we're crap. Wouldn't it be nice to have a well-dressed lawyer get up and say, your honor, here's the other argument. 
And I think that one of the things that is a leadership tack is to create your own advocate in your brain to argue for why you don't suck. I love what you said. It's an investment. You know what we do? Let's invest in our own lawyer to defend our ass in our brain because our brain is a courtroom always passing judgment on us. Maybe we should invest in a lawyer. And, I, and I've and i never thought about it before, but honestly, that's what my work is. It's investing in a high-powered lawyer that then can live in your brain. And every time the prosecution steps up and says, you're stupid, you're dumb, you're worthless, they will be like, you're on. Alan Shore for the defense, right? Like, it's just like, and I've never thought about it. And I appreciate you giving me the chance to think about it that way, because it's one of those analogies that kind of makes sense. And just what you were saying made me start to think of that. That's so cool, Drew. Drew, There's a courtroom in your head. And right now there's only one table. Here's the thing, man. Like, so you and I are going to, like, we're going to, this is the start of something I can tell. And I'm super impressed by your action bias. I'm really impressed by that. Because I think it's a hard thing. And what that means, action bias is, well, we were talking about Top Gun earlier. Stop thinking and do, right? So oh. if you know there's something that's on brand, that's on value, that's in there, and I'm scared to do it, instead of just getting in that left brain, left prefrontal thinking, analyzing, 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 nope, it's on brand, it's definitely there, I'm going to do it. Because it's what is in alignment with my values. So yeah. I'm going to do it. Well, and yes, it's terrifying. And yes, it may scary and yes i don't know the roadmap and yes i don't know if it's going to be successful but i'll tell you what it's in alignment with the values and i'm doing it yeah but you step one is figure that out but i just want to you know you're the kind of guy don't deflect this compliment this is for you and i mean it your work is so damn important and you're doing the right mm-hmm. stuff and it is your gift and keep giving it and please please check out drew's website get in touch with him he's doing the right work you know he's worked in the university level He's a you know Wall Street Journal bestselling author. He's a leadership trainer, and he's just a good guy who's trying to do good work. So check him out, please, please check him out. And you and I are going to reconnect again soon. Sorry for going over. I want to be respectful of your time, man. But it was just too good. <laughs> and no, this is awesome. I'm just going to go hop in my car now. All I had planned like this afternoon, you know, how you get a meeting thrown in like at the end of the day that just screws. Yeah. everything up. So now I get, there's a little place here called the Warren General Store, yeah. which is like this old school, tiny town, like does everything, including like the 150 year old mailboxes for oh, all the people who live in the area. So man, I'm going to drive there, grab some sandwiches, sit by a river and then do another meeting. So don't worry about love that. It. My job here was to relax in the woods. And love so it. I'm going to go get some sandwiches. I'm going to go love try it. a disc golf for the first time. Love it. And we're going to see how this goes. So my friend, I do have to run. If for no other reason, then I have to hit the bathroom. Yeah. But Thanks, what a pleasure doing this. I know my answers are long. I hope you saw that, that there were things in there. You think about. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you. We'll be in touch. Thanks, See man. Buddy. I appreciate it. Yeah, Peace. yeah. Thank you so much for continuing to listen to the Brain Mastery Podcast. We're super grateful for the community of supporters of this podcast. Again, this podcast was designed with an intention and an objective, and that was to share stories of rehabilitation, of recovery from brain injury, to really interview some of the leaders out there to provide more hope to community members. So thank you again for all of the support with that. If this episode resonated for you and had value for you, we just ask, 
please download and share it. Please also, if you wouldn't mind, rate the podcast. Those ratings really matter and help us to spread the message. If you're a clinical provider out there, meaning a physical therapist, an occupational therapist, or somebody who just works with people with brain injury and want to learn more about the BEARS platform, we've tried to make it as easy as possible for you to do so. Just go to www.abiwellness.com to learn more about how to get involved. Uh, Training is very accessible, and we've tried to make it very, very easy for people to get access to this neurorehabilitation platform. Thank you again for your support, and we'll see you on the next episode. The statements made regarding the BEARS platform and ABI Wellness have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. The efficacy of the BEARS platform has not been confirmed by FDA-approved research. The BEARS platform is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. All information presented here is not meant as a substitute for or alternative to information from healthcare practitioners. Please consult your healthcare professional about potential interactions or other possible complications before using any product. The Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act requires this notice.